I was talking about the behavior of light. We're just going to start there. Sorry. Um, all of you are in. I said some really profound things, uh, and we're just going to leave it at that. But we've been talking about this, this tension between divine sovereignty, human responsibility, right? So uh, if what I just said is if God has already decided, you know, who's in and who's out, if God already knows who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God, why should, uh, why should we bother sharing our faith? Why do we take that, like, does it even matter? Our, our human will. And so this tension between this divine sovereignty and human responsibility is going to be front and center of our consideration this morning. As we've been going through the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, last week we saw him turn his attention to the, the resident believers in the Greek city of Philippi. He was encouraging them to be steadfast in faith encouraging them to strive for unity in the midst of their congregation. And his rhetoric culminated with a beautiful depiction of humility of Jesus Christ, right? That we saw, and we talked about it this morning in communion, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we see this humility, we see this attitude that we ought to model. Now, as he returns to encouraging the Philippians, he's, he's saying, I want you to, to continue to pursue this lifestyle, have this attitude in Jesus. And so if you would open your Bibles or Bible apps or however you want to follow along, we're going to pick up from where we finished last week and look at the rest of Philippians chapter 2. And so this section expands this command of Paul that we saw last week to, quote, conduct yourselves. I, if you remember last week, I talked about how that was a, a, a very political term. It was, you know, behave like a citizen. And we, I, I pointed out how a citizen, not of Rome, not of Philippi, but of the kingdom of God, ultimately. Live a life worthy of this kingdom, worthy of the gospel. Last, last week, we saw that it was to be done in light of Christ's example. So if you would follow along as I read, this is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, again, therefore, if you see that in Scripture, you know, the, kind of the uh, uh, mnemonic device you can use, what is the therefore, therefore, right? That, it, it connects us to what happened beforehand. Therefore, my beloved, as a result of all that, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. 
How as a son with a father he has served me, served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it go, will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So the first paragraph of this section spans verses 12 through 18, and and I want to take a closer look at those verses. The first two verses, 12 and 13, begin basically by telling the Philippians, keep up the good work. Right? These two verses provide this relationship, right, that I alluded to at the beginning of the message. Paul tells the Philippians, continue to obey, that just as Christ was obedient, even to death, so too the believers in the Greek city are to continue to work for unity, to continue to avoid selfish ambition. From this opening transitional statement, Paul tells the Philippians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. There is a clear tension in those two statements. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you. Who is the one responsible for bringing change to our lives? Is it God or is it ourselves? Now, I think much like my response to this antinomy of light, is it a wave or is it a particle, right? Are we responsible or is God responsible? The short answer is yes. There you go. Tension resolved, problem solved. You can all head home. We'll call it, a, I'm just kidding, a call it a day. Let's, let's keep looking at this, right? What is our responsibility in this relationship? What does it mean to work out our salvation in fear and trembling? Right, this verb, work out, is used elsewhere. It's translated for, you know, bringing about or producing. But I, th- I, I like the way the ESV renders this, right? Work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. The the salvation that we work towards is not the same thing as as our justification. Justification is a word that people in the church use, theologians use, to describe this status of innocence that's conferred to us. It's what we talked about with communion, that I'm a sinner, Christ lived the perfect life, he died, and so like he kind of took my sin when he died, and, and I'm given credit for his righteous life, right? That's justification. That is often understood as salvation, and it is salvation, but that's not the salvation that we're working out, right? It, it, we are not responsible for that. That's something that God has done in the past for us. What Paul's encouraging them to do is something in the present. How do you join with that? We don't earn our salvation, But now that it has been granted to us, this passage does highlight that we have a responsibility. We have 
something that we ought to do as believers, right? To, to grind it out. I think this takes us away from being passive Christians, just sitting back, waiting for God to do all the work for us. No, we're supposed to get our hands dirty discovering, unearthing what this salvation means in our lives. Right? This is coupled with the attitude that we should have while we work, fear and trembling. And again, I said this at the beginning, not fear like I'm scared, you know, I'm not watching a horror movie. This fear is one of reverence, of respect. It reveals the seriousness of living out a commitment to the gospel of Christ. Proverbs likes to use this language. It says, you know, early in, in the book of Proverbs, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so maybe a fear is kind of like a hang-up because you've, you know, watched, you know, too much Michael Myers or someone else and you're, you know, afraid of turning the corner. Uh, maybe instead of the word fear, substitute that word like weightiness. There's a weightiness to it, a gravity to this truth that we need to be, we're not flippant with it. Now, in the very next breath, work out your salvation. Very next breath, Paul says, for it is God working in you. Right? This is the antinomy. Who's doing the work? The passage shows that there is some measure of shared responsibility of these roles. Now, let me give you another metaphor. Some of you have heard me use this metaphor before, but so, see if it helps to take these abstract concepts and make them a bit more concrete so that we can visualize this. Because so, really, you know, reading the scriptures is great, but what difference does it make in our lives? How are we learning and growing as a result of it? Now, I am not a gardener. I have what you would probably call a brown thumb. I am really good at growing weeds. Uh, so I'm not great at, 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 at you know, agriculture, but I, I know the principles. I'm smart enough to know. And, and I think that you can think of our relationship with God's work, right? God's working and our work similar to the way that we would encounter a garden. You or I cannot make anything grow. We can't just will that plant to thrive. We can't force a seed to germinate. We cannot make sure that the roots are strong. We cannot manifest fruit on its limbs. All of that work is done by forces outside of our control. But if you really want your garden to flourish, you do have a responsibility to it. You can till the soil, right? loosening the soil, allowing oxygen to get down deep into it. You can pull weeds around your crop so that the weeds don't leach the precious resources away from the developing plants, stunting their growth. You can provide fertilization to ensure that these vulnerable plants have the nutrients that they need to thrive. All of those options are in your control. And I would say if you don't do a combination of those items, you're not going to see growth in the garden. I mean, years ago, I bought an electric tiller to aid our gardening work. And I regularly, at the beginning of the season, would always turn the soil. But after planting the weeds, <laughs> I uh, get burned out, and I did not do the laborious work of pulling weeds. And, and so what happens next is those weeds choke out the potential of crops. Now, sure, there's something that might be there to harvest. Like, we even got some pumpkins the last couple of years, because pumpkins will grow in just about anything. 
but it was far from the potential that could have been. Just turning the soil was not enough. I could not rely on a single past action to ensure that the crop would reach reach what was possible. I had to regularly maintain that garden. Now, I think the spiritual life is precisely like a garden at the risk of, you know, overemphasizing, overdoing this metaphor. Like, let's think about it like an analogy. God is the one who causes the growth in our lives, but where might we have responsibilities to partner in that work? Just like, you know, turning over the soil, increase oxygen access to the seed. We ought to be part of a community of people who shake us up, who challenge us, who encourage us. Much like weeding, we can weed the plot of our hearts. We can turn to God in confession and repentance, right? Pull out those worthless things that are drawing our attention, drawing our heart away from the source of life in God. Just like fertilizing the soil, we can be a people immersed in the Word of God, in the Scriptures, to provide nutrients necessary for our growth. Each of those elements, you've got some control over. We can take ownership of those elements of our faith. We don't cause, we don't force our hearts to grow and mature, right? That's purely on the Lord. But we can provide an environment that's hospitable to such growth. We can clear space so that God will work. I mean, He, of course, can work in any circumstances, but, you know, I have found that God will not often force Himself upon us, right? C.S. Lewis used to say there are two types of people in the end, either those who say to God, thy will be done, or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Either we acknowledge God and are willing to, to, uh, uh, you see him as who he is and say, all right, God, whatever you say, I'm in. Or those who continue to be stubborn, selfish, God says, all right, have it your way, right? You go, uh, and he kind of gives pictures of this in his book, The Great Divorce, of what hell would look like. And so I don't think God is going to force himself on us. So by creating this space in our hearts, we're inviting God right? It's like, you know, inviting the the, the master electrician to come in and rewire us. I think this is precisely what Paul had in mind when he's encouraging the Philippians to work out their salvation because God's at work within them, right? God has saved you now. Take the ways in which you live your life seriously, right? Lean into that salvation as God continues to bring about transformation, I know I took a huge chunk of time on two verses. Let's look at the remaining 17. Because I think the verses 12 and 13 give us the how, right? That's the catalyst. And what follows after that is really the consequences, the effects of that action. So let's just look at, you know, 13 to 18. You know, by taking an active role in preparing that soil of our hearts for God's work, we will be a people who live without grumbling or disputing. That's verse 14. We saw the connection to unity last week. This word complaining appears a number of times in the Greek version of the Old Testament, describing the complaining of Israel while they walked through the wilderness. We don't have anything to eat. We don't have anything to drink. I'm tired of bread. I wish I had meat. The people in this land are, they're too big, God. I mean, imagine, like, your your kids over and over again in the car, like, are we there yet? You know, that's, that's what 
the scriptures are, are saying. Like, don't, don't be like that. Paul's connecting this mostly Gentile believers in Philippi to the spiritual heritage of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. And the message is learn from their mistakes, right? Don't presume upon your salvation. In so doing, you'll succeed where, where they failed. You will shine like stars, shine like lights, verse 15, providing illumination, displaying the glory of God to the nations so that the Lord's salvations can reach the ends of the earth. It's a loose paraphrase of Isaiah 49.6. And let's keep this garden metaphor going. When we hold fast, as Paul says in verse 16, in other words, when our roots go deep and we cling to the foundation of Jesus Christ, we will be a witness for God's love and majesty to a watching and waiting world. And that language of holding fast made a lot of sense to the Philippians. We saw a couple weeks ago they had this context of persecution that both they and Paul were facing. Paul says at the end of verse 16 that he is hoping that his labor and work in the Philippians church wasn't for nothing, that their steadfast hold to the gospel like his own displays a work that is worthy of God's kingdom. Verse 17, he continues to highlight the very real possibility of his death for the gospel, this language of drink offering. Uh, it's, it can be found, if you're interested, you can turn to, to Numbers 15 as a supplement. It's where it comes from. But in all things, there in verse 18, we see once again one of these primary themes of this letter confront us. We should rejoice. We should be grateful, have gratitude. Now, the rest of the chapter, Paul turns his attention away from these commands directly to the Philippians and provides something that seems to be out of place in the letter, verses 19 through 30. Right? Paul moves to these mundane travel plans of two saints, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And this feels so out of place that there are a number of commentators who think that Paul originally meant to end his letter here, because right? the end of the letter is where you usually get, you know, like the shout-outs and the logistical details of what's going. And so their theory was that he meant to end it here, and then he had this like new wave of inspiration and continued the letter. But I don't, I don't actually think that's what's going on here. I think Paul is very intentionally including these plans here, because what he's doing is he's providing two very real life, right, in-the-flesh examples of what he's been talking about to the Philippians, right? Paul is providing two stories of people who have conducted themselves worthy of the gospel. And in using these people, he's also giving an update of what the church should expect, right? Timothy's not coming as soon as they expected, and Epaphroditus is coming back a little sooner than they thought. So first Timothy, Paul says that Timothy will be delayed in returning to them because Paul's keeping him around. He's holding him out with him a little bit longer. Verse 23 says he's holding on to Timothy until he hears the results of his trial. But reading beyond just the logistics, I mean, Paul gives Timothy three primary accolades, right? He knows what it's like to be united, like-minded in the Spirit, verse 20. He puts the interests of Jesus Christ above his own, verse 21. He has been tested and found faithful as a son to his father, verse 22. Each of these examples, Timothy is displaying the character that Paul has been calling the Philippians to live in the last two chapters, right? This is how you live, Philippians. Here's a guy who's doing it. Then Paul moves to Epaphroditus. While the Philippians await the delayed arrival of Timothy, which Paul just says will be ambiguously, you know, quote, soon, 
In the meantime, Paul's sending Epaphroditus back to the city of Philippi. Now, remember, a couple weeks ago I talked about how the Philippian church heard that Paul was arrested, and so they sent uh, a gift of of money to them. Well, in chapter 4, we find out that it was actually Epaphroditus who was that messenger. Epaphroditus is the one that brought this gift. And so Paul shares that Epaphroditus has been partnering with Paul for the cause of the gospel. He's been a fellow worker, he's been a a soldier, a messenger, a minister, right? All these characteristics speak to this unity and selflessness that Paul's been advocating for. The text tells us that Epaphroditus on this journey has gotten sick. And we don't know what kind of sickness, but clearly it was significant. Because Paul says he, he almost died. But God was merciful to all parties, sparing him death, and, you know, now Epaphroditus is, like, just longing to be reunited with his church family. But again, let's, like, look at the parallel. Last week, we saw that Jesus displayed his selfless love by being obedient, even to the point of death. And now he's sharing a story about Epaphroditus, pairing it with a guy who, while Jesus, you know, like Jesus, he came near death. He didn't die like Jesus, but was willing to hold his life loosely in obedient service to his commission. What we see in Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of what it means to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We're we're separated by 2,000 years. We don't really know much about Timothy and Epaphroditus in our own personal lives. Philippians did. Paul's given a clear image to them. Two people who had worked out their salvation with fear and trembling as God was busy at work in their lives. So as we think about this, how do we we apply this? We don't know Timothy and Epaphroditus, but we can still learn from their example. So I think the clearest place for us to start is this overall theme of our participation with what God's doing in us. Remember that metaphor of the garden. My encouragement to you or my challenge to you is what actions are you taking to create a hospitable environment for God to work in your life? I gave those examples of weeding or fertilizing. How are you pursuing Christian community? Do you have an inlet of spiritual nutrients through your reading of the Bible? Are you regularly weeding your soul, you know, going through a process of confession, acknowledging where you err, and repentance, seeking to turn from those behaviors in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? How are you partnering with God's work in your life? Or are you just kind of sitting back? All right, God, go ahead to it. I don't really want to do much about this. Salvation, you can't, you can't lose your salvation, but you're going to be far off from the potential. You're not really going to be living that life that's worthy of the gospel. You're going to have a a garden filled with weeds and very little fruit. But I think beyond just that, there are some very other very clear commands of Paul. What about verse 14? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I'm naturally wired to be a critic, be a little critical. Uh, John Moon and I were at the theater last week. Uh, we went and saw Moulin Rouge, and at intermission, I was like, I was just complaining about all the things that I didn't like. It was very good, but I was complaining about all the things that I didn't like about the show. And John, you know, made some comment. He's like, have you ever thought about writing musical critiques? 
you know, and it wasn't mean-spirited, but he was like pointing out like my critical eye. My first, you know, my first instinct was like focus on these things that I didn't like, you know, here while I'm watching this musical that won like 10 Tony Awards, so they must have done something right in, in the process of it. Now, you know, I'm not saying that you should never say anything negative, but how much do we bridle, do we kind of hold back our tongue when it comes to our complaining? Do you complain about your coworkers, using opportunities to gossip about them? Are you a child who complains about the dinner that your parents prepare for you? Do you grumble about the gameplay of the Steelers, screaming at the television? Do you nitpick certain habits of your spouse? Do you complain about traffic as you're trying to get through the Squirrel Hill Tunnel? I mean, I think that if we slowed down and took an inventory of our life, it would not take us too long to find some place that we've been complaining, that we've been grumbling about regularly. Paul here in this letter is connecting a life that is free from grumbling, free from complaining, with that of being a blemish-free child of God. Now, my my goal, again, I think this demonstrates how work out your salvation because God's at work in you. The goal of this is not just to internalize everything. You know, it's not just to to have a negative thought and then bite your tongue and not say it and just kind of keep bringing everything in because it's going to erupt eventually. That's not what Paul's getting at. You know, frankly, Jesus said something about having sinful thoughts being basically as bad as the sinful action itself. So just polishing our exterior isn't what we're aiming for. This is about changing our attitudes. It's about seeking Christ's transformation in our souls. Acknowledging, recognizing when you start to complain, it's like a weed that you can pluck. God, I acknowledge that I'm doing this. It's not how I should be living my life. I need you to come in and change my heart so I stop doing that. This is about changing those attitudes. Remember, this context of this whole passage comes on the heels of what preceded that, therefore, at the beginning, this beautiful testimony of the attitude of Christ, right? He didn't pursue selfishness, but he was compassionate he reached out to those around him serving them, regardless of whether they deserved it or not. Taking inventory of your life, trying to eliminate complaining, would be a very simple thing to practice, but it's not easy. As we saw at the beginning, we cannot force our hearts to change, but we're invited to join in that restoration process to create that hospitable space for God's transformation. All right, I've gone a little over. I apologize. Let me give you the the um, questions to kind of jumpstart some of this. So, thinking about that weeding of your soul, what should you add to your routine to prepare the soil of your heart for God's growth? What's something that you can make sure that you're doing? Second, this week, notice your words, right? Take inventory. Is your first reaction to praise or to grumble? Jesus said, "Out out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so, when you start to pay attention to how you talk, how you address what you say, Uh, behind closed doors, uh, that starts to reveal a little bit of of the nature of your your heart. And lastly is this, if, you know, if you're like Paul writing this letter, you know, who are one or two saints that you would use as an example? Who are the people that you would go to to say, all right, like they've got it, they're living that God-honoring life, and what is it about them that you notice?
Let me pray, and then we got one more song to sing. God, thank you for the ways in which you have uh, given us this word that even 2,000 years later, we can read it, and we can learn from it, and we can grow. Uh, May we be a people who are not reserved to just sit back on our heels, but want to be on our toes, joining with the work that you're doing in us. And so, God, this week, I pray that you would reveal those places to us, that you would kind of give us little uh, insights, intuition of the places where perhaps we've allowed weeds to to creep up. Uh, And may we, in your power, uh, pull those weeds and rededicate, continue to rededicate ourselves to your kingdom and your, your purposes. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.